Hello, and welcome to Flowering of the Human Spirit, Edinburgh Without Its Festivals. I'm your host, Claire Stewart, and I have somewhat recklessly committed to recording a daily podcast in August to look at the Edinburgh festival season when there's no festivals taking place this year, 2020. For the first time since 1947, we have no festivals and there's a lot of interesting things to reflect upon. Uh, This is the Thursday the 6th of August episode and today I'm going to be looking at the Edinburgh International Festival Programme and some of the disappointing aspects of that programme, quite frankly. Uh, I didn't think that I was going to be talking about festival programmes at all on this podcast because it was supposed to be about a city with no festivals, but of course the surprise announcement on Monday that there is in fact going to be an international festival programme has caused a slight swerve in proceedings. And I'm going to be joined by Rosie Aspinall-Priest, who has got some great things to say about this programme. And quite frankly, we both got our own critical responses to it. Um, So please stay tuned for those. For context, the Edinburgh International Festival was founded in 1947 and is uh, described on the Edinburgh Festival City website. Founded in 1947, the Edinburgh International Festival is an unparalleled celebration of the performing arts and an annual meeting point for peoples of all nations. Committed to virtuosity and originality, the International Festival presents some of the finest performers and ensembles from the world of dance, opera, music and theatre for three weeks in August. Over the course of the year, the International Festival team travel the world in search of the most exciting and creative artists working today. Together, it brings unique collaborations, world premieres, new takes on classic works, critically acclaimed productions, and more to captivate, thrill, and entertain audiences from around the world, all in one place, right here in Scotland. I've been reflecting that a year ago in August, today, I was watching a play um, reading by Hannah Lavery, her play Lament for Sheku Bayo, which was staged by the Edinburgh International Festival last year in more of a rehearsed reading performance kind of context. It was nonetheless absolutely fantastic performance. All of the actresses involved were amazing. The writing was really powerful and impactful and I loved it. I loved the performance and I really thought, wow, this is something that you don't normally see because it was looking at the the death in police custody of Sheku Bayo, who was a 31-year-old gas engineer, husband and father of two, from um, who lived in Kirkcaldy. And yeah, the, the questions around the police handling of that is putting it mildly. There are campaigns for the officers involved to be fully and and criminally charged for for what happened and an ongoing campaign by his family. So this play was a response to those events by Hannah Lavery. Uh, She's a fantastically talented poet and playwright and writer. So to see see this staged by the International Festival 
was brilliant. For me, I thought, wow, a real turning point for a festival to be staging plays written by Scottish playwrights and looking at issues of racism in Scotland. At the same time, it wasn't put out there in the main programme, it wasn't on a big stage and I do feel that, you know, it, it could have been and it should have been not wanting to shed any negativity on that staging but there was then the decision to do a Q&A afterwards and that Q&A was discussing some very emotive and powerful topics which arguably the forum was not equipped to handle and putting the performers and the playwright on stage for questions from a mainly white audience perhaps might not have been the best handling of that scenario, perhaps letting the work speak for itself instead of putting that in a programme where that kind of thing seemed to be, it almost questions the authority and the authorship of the of the playwright in a way to open that up to audiences and I, I, I've, I've been thinking about it on and off over the past year then we're you know we're looking at what's happening with the EIF programme now. I'm so glad that Rosie is able to join us on the podcast today because she has drawn attention to some important issues with the EIF programme this year which I agree need to be looked at and especially for a very large very handsomely financially supported festival um, in Scotland, they do have a responsibility to do better. So the Edinburgh International Festival's digital programme, mainly digital for 2020, or their meantime programme, as I'm thinking of it, was released on Monday ahead of its going forward and launching to the public on Saturday, uh, has attracted attention for some disappointing reasons, which to me are centrally valid to the future of festivals, or in fact, the now of festivals. Uh, According to account done by Rosie Aspinall-Priest, who is Rosie Abeast on Twitter, I'll link her Twitter in the the show notes, uh, who I follow on Twitter and who works in the arts and also researches the arts um, in Edinburgh. The Edinburgh International Festival programme for 2020 features, out of 120 artists listed, uh, 74 white men, 35 white women, five women of colour, although she notes this is generous because they don't actually list them by name, just by group, five men of colour and one non-binary person. A later tweet by Rosie said, a friend flagged I'd missed out some artists after a brief recount. 89% white artists, according to the website. Still damning. And she says, more insight needed, definitely. How, in light of Black Lives Matter, has this happened? Uh, Yeah, good question, Rosie. Uh, I had much the same reaction while seeing many fantastic artists and performers on that programme. It was so visibly unbalanced. And Rosie's count gave the metrics to back it up. 
and shockingly the women of colour on the programme were not individually credited on the website which says so much really and uh, checking just before recording this they're still not named can someone send an email and update the website uh, lay amazon dafreak on their own website they look amazing and i have been watching some of their videos uh, their own website does state that their producer is uh, liam farrell who is yes a white man apparently french irish white man so where the name credits left off on purpose one can't help but wonder um yeah, but nonetheless, why are those women of colour not being credited for their artistic contributions? So Rosie and I both acknowledge our privilege as white cis women talking about this issue. Also, that we still must talk about it because, frankly, we need to take responsibility for speaking up about this and then holding space for other voices in the discussion. Underrepresented groups need to have their voices heard and they need us to speak up to especially when there are such imbalances of power at play as Rosie will talk about. I must acknowledge myself honestly that if the festivals were taking place this year and I was going to be in festival environments I would be feeling personally a lot more trepidation about saying these things on a public platform. It's not meant to be comfortable to challenge powerful structures and people. And maybe maybe a year off from the festivals is going to give us that space to talk about making the festivals better. Not just for the city, but for the festivals themselves to do better. Rosie Aspinall Priest kindly agreed to talk to me about her reading of the programme. And I loved what she had to say. Here's Rosie. Uh, hi Claire, thank you for asking me to um, contribute to your podcast um, uh, and talk a little bit about uh, the sort of tweet exchange um, that I've been having with um, Edinburgh International Festival and um, ultimately Fergus Lynham, the director of the International Festival. So I'm an artist, I'm also a PhD researcher and I have a part-time job working in theatre. So um, I've sort of got this multifaceted experience of working and researching in the arts, but also just really loving the arts. And I'm sure, as you know, Edinburgh now in August without the festivals um, has been, I would say, um, a, bit of a, a bit of a shock to the system. So obviously, like a lot of people, I was really excited when Edinburgh International Festival announced that they would be having a digital online programme. Um, the um, One of the artists that I saw uh, is this amazing West African collective called um, Amazon's Afrique, who played in Glasgow a few years ago and are absolutely phenomenal. So I was really excited to explore their programme. But the more that I clicked through, the more that I realised, as my friend Harriet would say, it was very pale, very stale, and very male. Um, which doesn't actually really come as much of a shock, uh, especially for um, people who've been to the International Festival before will probably know there's a lot of programming of white men's work, there's a lot of programming of classical work, and there's a lot of programming of, you know, mediums like ballet. Now, 
that's not to say that these art forms aren't important, but um, yeah, they are typically associated with the pale, stale male rhetoric. So I decided to do some counting, and what I counted was that the artists who were listed were primarily white men. Um, and out of those who weren't white men, they were primarily white women. Only 10% of the artists um, who were being supported this year at the Edinburgh International Festival seemed to be artists of colour. Um, and this I just found personally really shocking. Uh, a moment in time where we've seen black people die at a higher rate than white people from COVID, when we've seen people marching on the streets for Black Lives Matter, when we know that women are disproportionately carrying the weight of our society during this pandemic, and we're seeing, you know, across mainstream media, trans women's mere existence be eroded, it seems to me to be completely unethical to provide a platform for voices that are heard too often and that the voices that really need to be heard and really be supported are the ones that are being marginalised and that as an organisation the Edinburgh International Festival just needed to do better. So I sent a tweet and um, I am definitely not uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not like super well known you know um, uh, and it started generating more and more likes and more and more retweets and then that sort of spurred me on to reach out to the International Festival um, so I sent Fergus Lynham, the director of the festival, a message uh, I sent him an email um, asking him to elaborate on some of the points that my tweet highlighted um, why were there so many white men? Why were there so few black people? And why was the only group um, of all black women uh, not given full artistic credit? And the response email that I got was just disappointing. It was just disappointing. Um, the response generally was, we're having conversations and we need to do better. And frankly, I think in light of specifically Black Lives Matter, but everything else that's happening in the world, as inequalities are getting larger, they're not getting smaller, you need to provide quantifiable aims that you can be held accountable. How are you going to platform those marginalised voices? And who are you going to provide support to? You need to say, you need to give numbers. So um, I replied to his reply. Um, I should also probably note that the discrepancy between the power dynamic, like, doesn't evade me. You know, I'm speaking to a man who earns over £100,000 a year and is a director of an international festival. After taxes, I think I take home about £15,000 a year. So he's earning a decent six or seven times the amount of money that I am and also has a much bigger platform, followers and like respect and in those terms power than I do. I'm also aware that I have a tremendous amount of privilege. I'm a white working class woman, but I have research funding for a few years. Um, I'm a cis woman um, and I live 
relatively comfortably. So in my response, um, I suggested that actually this conversation shouldn't be contained between him and I, that really the Edinburgh International Festival needs to be reaching out to those marginalised people and those marginalised artists and having conversations with them, which are paid for, because the emotional labour of a person of colour to explain institutional racism to a man who earns the amount of money that he earns in an organisation that has the power that it does is completely inequitable. Um, and yeah, I'm waiting on my response from Fergus. So I will, um, I will let you know. I will keep you informed of how that goes. So um, I guess what I've taken away from this is uh, actually something that Scott Rail has been telling us for a really long time. See it, say it, sort it. Because, you know, I have a very small platform. I don't, I think I have like 800 Twitter followers. But if I can raise this problem to them and they can raise it to their friends, then we can make positive change and we can also try and do some of the hard work for marginalised people who will, I imagine, be incredibly exhausted at this moment in time, in light of Black Lives Matter, in light of just constantly having to push for change. Like, I can try and be a force for positive change in some way. And also that... Um, the festival, the fringe, you know, they're not just the international festival. There's some amazing things happening online. Um, the Fringe of Colour, uh, if you haven't looked at it, is um, a group of um, artists of colour and they have this huge array of offerings and uh, it's £10 to have access to dozens of um, digital performances and insights and also like opportunities to talk with other people so uh, yeah I'd like to say uh, thank you for listening to me um, but also check out the Fringe of Colour because uh, the stuff they're doing is far more interesting and in no way pale, stale or male like the work of the Edinburgh International Festival. Linehan, the Edinburgh International Festival's director, on her Twitter, which is Rosie Beast on Twitter. And you can also read her response that she received from Fergus and her own response to Fergus. Rosie, in her tweets, also talks about the fact that the image used for the press promo, the launch of the programme on Monday, is an artist of colour. I know that artist to be the supremely talented Edinburgh-based musician Sue Lee, a Korean cellist and polymath of musical forms who I've seen perform many times. The last classical concert I went to with the SCO she was playing uh, in the Usher Hall and uh, she also plays the musical Saw as well as the cello and avant-garde contemporary music with McFall's Chamber as well as classical repertoire and Sua truly deserves to be on the front of the Edinburgh International Festival programme in my opinion. She's the kind of person who should be there every year, a, a 21st century musician from Edinburgh, 
and a non-white classical musician in a very, very white classical music world. Uh, I don't think, though, that she ever would have been placed front and centre in this way any other year by the International Festival. And I see that with the greatest of respect for Sua, it's not about her, but it isn't what they do uh, normally. Uh, and for the programme behind this image to have been so dominated by whiteness and maleness just seems even more disappointing. All the same, I do think it's great that Sua has been put front and centre. But important discussions about the festivals and how they're programmed and their diversity and who gets the opportunity, who gets the platforms for their creative work, how they are recognised and how that's framed. These discussions are still a work in progress. And quite often these discussions are being programmed by white people and they're not necessarily getting it quite right. At this time of makeshift pop-up and emergency festival measures, you know, we still need to look at the programming decisions carefully. We need to have more open discussions about how equality of opportunity suffers when we are in emergency mode or when programmes are hastily assembled or thrown together. When opportunities are made available at the last minute, as have been throughout this unexpected season of COVID-19, shifts for the arts, who is able to take advantage of those opportunities? Some of the discussions I've been party to in the past, before any of this emergency time has been going on, included one about long-term planning and the structures of opportunities in the arts. And I recall one discussion of a prestigious opportunity for artists where questions were raised about the overwhelmingly white male middle class response in the application process. And when I and others put forth that this was because the timeline was structured as to make it impossible for anyone without significant time on their hands to take part, and a lack of surrounding support and flexibility, so for example, childcare support or flexible timing, the response was, oh, well, we don't have enough time for that. Some of the discussions that I've been involved in as well, there's resources that can be put out there, but we don't have enough time to, to work things that way. And there is where the case begins, that if you don't have time to do something properly, then maybe you shouldn't do it at all. Especially not if your goal is to get brownie points for diversity or creating opportunities uh, in the arts. Because you're contributing to an asymmetry in the arts, adding to the number of career-boosting opportunities that prop up a system where certain people who can say yes get the prize. And who does that serve? It serves the same people that it has always served. And what values does that serve? Uh, Not excellence in the wider sense, not opportunity in the wider sense, not equality. Many women writers I know are unable to take up residency opportunities because they have caring responsibilities, not just of children, but of older relatives. And perhaps they are having to work extra hard to actually make a living in in a sector where women are often paid a lot less than men. 
People who are more impacted by income inequality, from LGBTQ artists and people of colour to women and disabled artists, are just, they're not as able to work for free or to take up media, events, public speaking opportunities at short notice. The provision of opportunities for new talent, which include upper age limits, such as under 25 or under 30, are still being dreamt up and put forth by well-meaning funders and arts organisations when many people face obstacles to a creative career that sometimes only begins to be possible in their late 30s or early 40s or even older. You know, the structures are continually being put and held in place and rubber stamped by those who hold the power and influence who are often on salaries and who are wired to their missions to create excellence and pour forth tangible results. But excellent platforms that should involve intrinsically supporting artists regardless of their ability to be responsive and also to respect the non-negotiable pace of their lives and their need to make a living and to genuinely care for their mental health and physical health mental health and physical health in the festivals is something that I'm definitely going to be talking about in a later episode so you know subscribe if you're interested in getting in touch as well please send me a message on the anchor fm button it's a very handy little tool I know that there are people who work in the arts who genuinely breathe sighs of relief when a black person applies for their opportunity or says yes to their speaking engagement because that is the metric that they are focused on and it's a controversial thing. I'm aware it's a controversial thing to speak out loud as I'm saying it, but it's true. What kind of reality and status quo is that to be in? You know, we need to do better. If we want to have genuine equality of opportunity and representation and the resulting genuine excellence that comes from that, we need, as an arts community, to stop accepting a frenetic pace and to push back against a scarcity mindset to say out loud, you know, although it may be uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable for me, it's uncomfortable for many people, that pushing ahead with a kind of arts heroism is sometimes not serving those values we should be upholding and the values that we actually believe in. Sometimes trying your best is saying, no, we don't have time. We don't have time to just pull together a big festival if we can't make it truly the best that it could be. Thank you for listening to Flowering of the Human Spirit and if you've got anything you want to say, the anchor button is open for business on the Anchor FM page of this podcast which hopefully you should be able to find quite easily Flowering of the Human Spirit on Anchor FM anybody can send me a voice message and I'd love to hear from you until tomorrow when I'll have another episode take care and see you soon